This is Spotlight on France. I'm Sarah Elsis. And I'm Alison Hurd. Coming up, the Paris Bonlieu hosts its first ever gay pride. The Bonlieu, or poorer suburbs, are seen as being more homophobic than the capital, but are they really? And a look at some of the big stories in the news in France this week. And one of the big stories ongoing is football. <laughs> Sarah, I now know why you weren't here last week, why you abandoned me. You took the day off to watch the French <laughs> football team, Les Bleus, beating South Korea with your daughter. Yeah, we went to the Parc des Princes. So here you can hear my daughter, if you listen closely, saying, Allez, Les Bleus, let's go, the Blues. Now, you admit you're not a big football fan. So what made you want to go? Well, it is in our backyard, of course. So it kind of makes sense to want to go see this this big event. And, and I do like the idea of women competing on the same level as men. And I also felt it was important to show my daughter that this is a game that anyone can play. I'm not really sure she got it, though. She's still quite young. Um, in any case, the French team is doing pretty well. They beat Norway this week 2-1. Now they're into the last 16, and excitement is building. But that wasn't exactly the case back in the early days of women's football in France, which go back to a century. Yeah, the first women's football championships in France were in 1919, just after the end of World War One. The Football Federation banned and women's football, though, in 1921. And although some games continued a bit unofficially, the game more or less fizzled out for women in the 1930s. And then it only really resurfaced in 1968. Ghislaine Royer-Surf, she's known affectionately in France as Gigi, she was a key player in that revival. Um, she was one of France's first top female players, and she went on to be captain of Reims. Here she is talking about how the adventure began. <laughs> It was July 68. I saw a small ad in the local paper. They were looking for a girl footballer to play in a gala match for their annual tournament. I signed up and that was it. There were about 20 of us. I loved football because I was one of five children and my three older brothers played football. I began by picking up the balls. I practiced, got better, and then they let me join the team. The first match was against a team from Alsace. We won 3-1 and then the next day we won 2-1. I was 15 and a half. In 1969, they travelled to Czechoslovakia, England, the USA, Canada, Mexico and Indonesia. It was all very unofficial. But finally, in April 1970, the French Football Federation woke up and let the girls in. We had no recognition. We were in a bit of a dead end. And then, when they saw that girls were prepared to create their own federation, they realized good footballers were going to slip through their hands. So they allowed us to join the federation. Women's football grew, and in 1974, the Women's Football Championships were launched across France. There are now 12 clubs. Gigi is, unsurprisingly, quite happy to see just how much easier it is for girls now to move up in football. I get goosebumps just watching them. It's great for them to be able to make strides in a sport we loved so much. And they've got recognition now. We had a long, hard slog with a lot of setbacks. I'm nearly 65 now, but so long as I can give them a little something, I'll carry on. So interestingly now, we're talking about women's football. It is the same game, but how we talk about it isn't in France, because in French, unlike in English, we have a gendered language. 
language. So you can't really say the equivalent of women's football even. You say football féminin, which is feminine football. Yeah, it's not exactly neutral, is it? It makes it sound like it's less of a, a real game and more as if you're playing with, with full makeup and high heels. Indeed, yeah. The French Federation has come up with the term compétition féminin, the feminine competition. Other options are Coupe du Monde Femme, Women's World Cup. The Federation, as well as sports journalists, of course, have also had to figure out terms to use for describing the different positions on the field. So gardien or goalie becomes gardienne, défenseur or defender becomes défenseuse, although the French Federation prefers the term défenseur, which sounds the same as the masculine term défenseur, but it still has an E at the end. There's still disagreement over the word for coach or entraîneur. In theory, it would become entraîneuse, but some have pointed out that entraîneuse was a word used back in the 1950s for a woman whose job it was to incite people in bars to, to drink more. <laughs> the word for entraîner, I guess, which means to lead people away. Yeah, lead them astray. Indeed. Well, the Federation has rejected the term entraîneuse, though it really seems as though people today might be unlikely to make that association. In any case, the French team's coach, Corinne Diac, has opted for sélectionneur to call herself, with an E at the end. Whatever the terms, the championship has forced discussions about the feminization of the French language and the sport itself. But there's more than football in France these days. Emergency workers, doctors, nurses, aides went on strike on Tuesday, shutting down emergency rooms in nearly 90 French hospitals to highlight what they say is a glaring lack of means. This is the spokesperson for emergency doctors in France, Christophe Prudhomme. There's an emergency in A&E, says, and it seems the government isn't taking this reality on board. A strike movement's been brewing for three months. Nurses have been taking sick leave en masse. Workers have been taking five-minute strikes at noon and wearing slogans to work. Strikers say there's a dangerous lack of resources. Patients have been left to linger on stretchers in emergency room hallways because there aren't enough beds to meet them. French hospitals are under strain. A&E visits have more than doubled over the last 20 years, from 10 million a year in 1999 to 21 million today. What's more, underperforming hospitals have been closed and some doctors are leaving the public sector for better paid jobs in private clinics. So that is then leading to staff shortages. Strikers have been demanding a 300 euro a month pay rise and they want assurances that no hospital beds will be closed. Now the health minister Agnès Buzyn is in the direct line of fire in all this. She launched a mission this Friday to propose a fundamental reform of emergency services, creating urgent care centers for example, reorganizing workforces in the hospitals. Could it work? Well, strikers have been skeptical. For them, really, it's about money. And if you look at it, the French health system does work and works quite well, but it really does depend on funding. The social security system, which includes the healthcare system, was supposed to break even this year after 18 years of running in the red. But some reports say it'll end the year with a debt of between two and four billion euros. Marine Le Pen, the leader of France's far-right national rally, formerly the National Front, launched a new far-right group in the European Parliament this week, uniting 73 MEPs from Eurosceptic and far-right parties across the continent. Le Pen also got the news that she'll be facing trial. She's being charged with disseminating violent images in three tweets she sent in December 2015. The photos showed atrocities committed by the Islamic State armed group. Now, these charges come after a 
three-year judicial investigation. It concluded that these violent images could have been seen by children. Le Pen's a member of the European Parliament. She was stripped of her parliamentary immunity in March of last year, so she could stand trial in France for this case. And as part of the investigation, she was ordered to go through a psychiatric assessment. She ended up posting the document on Twitter, which launched another investigation because it's against French law to publish any court proceedings before trial. The date of this trial has not yet been fixed. Le Pen calls this and other legal proceedings against her a form of political interference. And this weekend, the Archbishop of Paris will lead the first Mass at the Notre Dame Cathedral since it was damaged by a fire two months ago. It'll be a very small affair late Saturday in a side chapel, restricted to 20 people wearing hard hats, and it'll be broadcast live on French TV, according to the diocese. Now, workers have been continuing to secure the cathedral. It's still in recovery mode. There are big tarps over the roof. Rubble's been cleared from the transepts. Archaeologists have sorted through it. The rubble in the nave that central part is still being cleared by robots. Yeah. Part of the reason is that there's a lot of lead in all of this. The roof was made out of lead and authorities have actually even advised local residents to get their kids tested for higher than normal lead levels. And in terms of reconstruction, lawmakers still haven't agreed on a framework. In the Senate, where the ruling REM party does not have a majority, they're pushing back on provisions in the proposed law that would allow architects to bypass regulations on preserving historical buildings. This in order to go faster and maybe introduce more modern designs. And the money, what of the 800 million euros that was pledged for the reconstruction? Well, it turns out only 9% has actually been donated. Bernard Arnault, who pledged 200 million euros, says he'll be doling it out bit by bit, depending on the needs of the reconstruction. It would seem, though, that a lot of other smaller donors have reneged. They figured there were enough big donors and they didn't need to contribute after all. This week, the Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, addressed both houses of parliament with a general political address. He laid out the government's reform framework that includes tax cuts for the middle class, a shift in unemployment benefits. He also talked about the environment. He stressed his government's ecological ambitions, as he put it. Michael Fitzpatrick covers the French press for us. Michael, first, what exactly did Edouard Philippe say about the environment in these speeches? Well, he, um, he surprised people by mentioning the environment right from the kickoff. Uh, he started his speech by uh, talking about how the, the government realized the importance of green policies. And uh, he continued in, in that way. That, that was a bit of a surprise because, of course, the press has had a field day this week. First, we got a day of predictions about what the Prime Minister was likely to say, and then we got a day analysing what he actually did say. Because he was expected to talk more about the economy and social reforms, and to start out with the environment was a big shift. In, indeed. So what does it say about the government's ambitions, as he puts it? Perhaps that they've taken on board the lessons learned uh, in the European elections, the European parliamentary elections, where right across the continent, uh, Green parties seemed to do surprisingly well. Especially here in France, they, they came in a third place. Third place, mm. and with a considerable increase in uh, voter support in real terms. So obviously the, the government wants to latch on to that energy. But the, the problem for the Prime Minister is that he's also anxious to stress how well this government is doing on economic growth. And so there is a tension there between promoting economic growth 
and making sure you take care of the environment. Was was that part of his speech? Did he recognize that? What, what was he proposing? What was he saying when, when he was actually laying all this out? Well, the speech didn't go into any great amount of detail. That's one of the things that he's been criticized for. In fairness, this is a sort of a general roadmap, so you don't really expect him to dot the I's and cross the T's. And it's also opened him to a certain amount of criticism, notably from uh, Delphine Bateau, who used to be an environment minister and who is now the uh, leader of the Ecology Generation Party. Uh, a smaller green-leaning party. Yeah, and, uh, and she says uh, that, in fact, a sort of smokescreen was put up by the Prime Minister, who he's now speaking the, the talk about a green approach without making any concessions on the economic front. It seems like we hear a lot about this idea of a green economy in the United States. There's this idea of a Green New Deal floated by the Democrats. The economy and the environment, of course, hand in hand. What exactly is then she criticizing of the government? Isn't on some level a good thing that the government's talking economy and saying this is a priority? The problem simply is that um, if you want the economy to grow quickly, you've got to do things that are environmentally suspect. The one uh, uh, sort of quote that's been circulating in the press is her condemnation of this doublespeak. You're saying that you're very green, but you're also saying you're going to force the economy ahead. There's a contradiction here. Are you for the planet or are you for quick political profit? And now to go back in time. Back to 1842. This week, on June 11, 1842, marks the beginning of France's national rail network, which has had some profound effects on how the country's been organized. France's first train line was opened five years earlier, in 1837, between Paris and Saint-Germain-en-Laye, some 30 kilometers west of the capital. But in 1842, King Louis-Philippe signed into law the framework for the state to create a rail infrastructure across the country, with private companies running the trains. A plan was drawn up by the chief public works engineer, Alexis Legrand, who conceived of seven lines radiating out of Paris and two transversal lines. You can see there was already a trend towards centralization even then. And when the law was put into place in 1848 under Napoleon III, all the lines came from Paris, which you can still see today, not just in the seven train stations that exist in Paris, but in the difficulty of going from one big city in France to another without passing through the capital. Legrand's plan came to be known as the Étoile Legrand, the Legrand Star, and it inspired British engineers who made a similar layout for rail networks around London. The Germans and Americans opted for a more decentralized approach with different hubs. France has just held its first ever gay pride rally in La Banlieue, these poorer working-class suburbs on the outskirts of the capital. The rally in Saint-Denis, just north of Paris, was organized by students who wanted to show they were standing up to homophobia, but also change what they see as preconceived ideas about life and attitudes in France's poorer, multi-ethnic neighborhoods, because it's often said that Les Banlieues are more homophobic than big cities. Around 1,500 people took part in the march, including some LGBT people from Paris and some left-leaning officials and MPs, so it, it was a much more modest affair than the Paris Gay Pride, which is on next weekend. Pierre-Olivier went along to see if it is harder living as an LGBTQ person in La Banlieue. People are chanting, we are sick of a society that doesn't respect trans, dykes and fags as they march on the streets of Saint-Denis. 
For the first gay pride in the banlieue, some people have really dressed up for the occasion. Against the backdrop of concrete tower blocks, 18-year-old Antoine Wadou stands out a mile. I put a lot of sequins on my face. I'm wearing a chain necklace. You might think it's a bit fetishist, but I think it's stylish. I'm all in white with the rainbow flag on my T-shirt, and I put earrings on. To be honest, I did get some very weird, aggressive looks on my way here. I put sunglasses on and wore a pullover to hide my clothes. Several people on the march prefer to avoid the looks of disapproval and are wearing masks so they are not recognized. That's what Steve chose to do. Born in Cameroon, he lives in another banlieue, a few kilometers away from Saint-Denis, He's not open about his sexuality and hasn't told his neighbors he prefers men. I've told a couple of my friends, but otherwise people in my neighborhood don't know. I don't want to be stigmatized for the way I live my life. Sometimes I feel more comfortable with friends in a nightclub in Paris than here in the banlieue. Sauveur, a man in his 50s, he's having a drink on the terrace of a cafe he raises his eyebrows as he watches the colorful march go by. A woman should be with a man and a man with a woman, but not two boys together. That doesn't exist. I can't see it in the Bible. I don't agree with these men marching. That kind of homophobia does exist, but for Dwas, the former vice president of ACT UP, it's not just in the banlieue. We shouldn't stigmatize the banlieue. People there aren't more aggressively homophobic than elsewhere. I think there's simply more of an LGBTQ community in Paris with more safe places like bars where we can meet and have nothing to fear. Personally, I was hit in the face at the Gare de l'Est and that's in the heart of Paris. So it's not true to say we're safer in big cities. We have to stop stigmatizing people in the banlieues. It's racist. This first gay pride in Saint-Denis went off peacefully and the organizers said there will be a second edition next year. This banlieue pride comes after a group of LGBT people of color took over the start of Paris Gay Pride last year. They staged a kind of sit-in, they blocked the parade before it started to make a point that they feel invisible and they want to be seen. At the time, I spoke to a student named Jonas who explained the double discrimination of being LGBT and a person of color. I don't recognize myself in like the pride usually, which is like very, very wide, very, very rich and very, very festive. We don't want to celebrate. Like, if we have like such a big space to speak, where do we use it just to make a party? The way it's done, it's made for people who are not me. For us, LGBT of color, we are taken between like two groups where we don't belong. People are saying that our communities are like the one who are like responsible for homophobia. But at the same time, when we want to go to LGBT spaces, we face racism and discrimination. Uh, sometimes very like direct abuse, uh, racist abuse, racist slurs, like in demonstrations, on dating apps, representation in the media. Like you can feel this like double rejection, and that needs to like create your own space and your own voice. So finding your own voice in the LGBT community and in the dominant culture. But it seems like for those in the banlieue, where there are often large Muslim communities, for example, claiming your voice requires some compromises. Within Muslim communities, it can be harder to get acceptance, even though Pierre-Olivier did hear from some residents who said they believed sexuality was very much a private affair. 
But overall, more conservative communities, whatever the religion, tend to struggle with accepting LGBT people. That goes for Catholics too. Remember the anti-gay marriage movement, which was led by conservative Catholics. And that movement accounted for a spike in homophobic attacks, which are again on the rise. The group SOS Homophobie has recorded 231 cases of physical aggressions against LGBT people in 2018. It's a 66% increase from the year before. And some say that that rise is partly because of the debate over maybe opening up assisted procreation to lesbian couples and single women. Because currently medically assisted procreation is only available to infertile heterosexual couples. It's a big debate in France and extremely controversial. And it was a campaign promise of President Emmanuel Macron that he would open it up and put it to a law. He's been dragging his feet. His government has been dragging its feet. But on Wednesday this week, the Prime Minister announced that Parliament would finally begin the debate in September with the law to be passed afterwards. That's it for this week. Spotlight on France is a podcast brought to you from the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Nicolas Doro. If you like what you hear and want more, find Spotlight on France wherever you get your podcasts. It would help if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is spotlight.france at rfi.fr. See you next Friday. Thank you.